Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 132. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning into the show. I'm so appreciative that you're here. I hope you're finding some value in this show. Have you heard of my new podcast, the Courageous Leadership Podcast? It's different than this one. It's not an interview podcast. It's just me talking about my leadership philosophies for about 15 or 20 minutes or so. Each episode promises to get into my mindset a little bit more about what I believe in leadership and how it can help you become the courageous, authentic leader that I think we are all meant to become. So go check it out, uh, Courageous Leadership Podcast, and go to iTunes. And just like this one, if you haven't done so, please take the time to enter a rating and review. It does so much for my visibility and to keep that uh, algorithm uh, alive in iTunes so we're more front and center. So again, thanks for all your support. I love continuing getting the emails and your thoughts and ideas on leadership. So please feel free to reach out and connect with me, and I promise I'll get right back to you. So anyway, thanks for all your support, and here's the interview. Well, I'm so thrilled to have on my show today Andrew Bennett. He's a leader. He spent the first 10 years in a Fortune 500 company culminating with growing an account from $5 million to $65 million in just two years. He's an entrepreneur, too, starting a leadership and organizational culture consulting and training firm that's been growing for the past 16 years. He's coached leaders in 38 companies to lead successful cultural change, including McDonald's, Hewlett-Packard, and, and Marriott International. He's a survivor, too, and I'm anxious to hear these stories, too, who's thriving after decades of tragic personal loss. And he's a magician, too. My first magician on Dose of Leadership. I'm excited to do. I love magicians. I love magic. And for 45 years, he's been a member. He is a member of, of London's Magic Circle, the oldest and most prestigious society of magicians in the world. Guys, Andrew, what a great combination. Welcome to the Dose of Leadership podcast. Thanks so much, Richard. It's great to be here. I really am honored. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. So I said a little bit, kind of some of your highlights in your bio. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Who is Andrew Bennett and why are you so passionate about leadership? Well, I grew up in uh, northwestern lower Michigan on a cherry farm, and I was raised by my grandparents, and my granddad was a uh, banker. We had the farm as, that was kind of his hobby, and uh, but he was a banker, and so to me, from a very early age, being in business, you know, putting on a suit was the definition of success, and so he had a tremendous influence on me, and he's also the one that got me interested in magic. He used to write my scripts and my jokes, and I still use them wow. today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some of them I've had to retire because they were politically incorrect, <laughs> but uh, I use a lot of them to this day. And um, when I got out of college, I wanted to be in management. I went to Michigan State University, and when I got out of college, I wanted to be in management. And um, the only job during that recession of 1983 was with uh, Joanne Fabrics, which I think everybody knows, yeah. but I was the only male manager out of 750 stores around the country. you got to be kidding me. So it was an interesting experience to be um, 
a minority and to experience things like uh, discrimination and things like that. But I happened to be in the right place at the right time, and uh, a friend of mine had just gone to work for Electronic Data Systems, EDS, and uh, she said uh, "There's the CEO is somebody that you really need to meet. Uh, he shares a lot of the same views about business that you do, and uh, so she set up an interview with this guy, and I'd never heard of him, and uh, he wasn't a household name at that time, but it was Ross Perot. Oh, my goodness. And so I met with Ross after work one night and just walked out of there on cloud nine, but it was really just a kind of meet this guy, he's a good guy. And the next day he called and said, uh, General Motors is purchasing my company. I'm going to be spending a lot of time in Detroit. I need someone there to handle everything from picking up my dry cleaning to um, setting up interviews with uh, with new managers who will be leading the company in a new industry for us in the automotive industry. And so he said, I know you're a manager right now. This isn't a management job. Uh, but if you're interested, I really felt like we got along and the job's there. So I didn't even think for a moment about it and did that and uh, spent my first six months at EDS with Ross. And uh, it was an amazing experience. And uh, then he kind of shepherded me through the company. And about every two years, I'd get a new assignment. And wow. my last two years with EDS was uh, managing a, an account in Australia, the one that you mentioned, that grew from $5 million to $65 million. So I was spoiled in those early days. I thought that all corporations had amazing cultures because the culture at EDS under Ross's leadership was unbelievable. It was very high performing, uh, very high expectations. Uh, you had to have a very strong work ethic, but it was also this incredibly inspiring, supportive environment where you just knew everybody had your back and it felt like we were part of this cause that had meaning. Oh, and I great. thought that's the way everything was. But as the years went by and I got uh, exposure to other companies, I saw where that wasn't the case. And I saw a lot of people who really had, um, they, they were demoralized, you mm -hmm. know, they felt like this is just a job. Um, people weren't inspired in their work and that's when I started becoming fascinated about leadership and um, the difference that it can make in people's lives and because of all the personal loss that I've had in my life um, things you know the deeper questions more existential questions about what's this all about were kind of accelerated in my life I right. um, I kind of wondered what things are all about in my 20s. I had, I had a midlife crisis in my 20s, and so the, the idea that you would just put your life on hold or tolerate your life for 40-plus hours a week really felt criminal to me, and I wanted to spend my life uh, creating environments where people could really feel that that 
passion and like what they were doing mattered and the collegiality and just all the good stuff that I think business can be. So, well, what a great training ground. You know, I, I'm, it resonates with me and, and I, I love hearing stories about that where, you know, because organizations, I think so many, the majority of organizations out there, they, they're on autopilot, they're very bureaucratic, they're, they're kind of mired in mediocrity, in my opinion. And it's, it's I, I understand completely because I can relate coming from the Marine Corps where you are in an organization that you're part of something bigger than yourself, something special, you're reminded about it every day. It is, you get used to that. And when I got out, I experienced the same thing. I just assumed businesses who are entrepreneurial and, and successful had unique cultures like that too. And you're right, it's not necessarily the case. But, you know, what a blessing for you to be exposed to that at such a young age in your career to, to kind of see what it should be like, you know what I mean? It was, you know, I really, um, I think there's been a lot, I've worked very hard and, <clears throat> you know, there's been a lot of things, I've developed skills and things like that, but it, I've also been very, very lucky. I mean, meeting Ross was just a right place at the right time kind of thing. I'm, I really am grateful for that. And I'm just, I'm thinking about a comment that you made about companies on autopilot and I've come to start referring to that as um, surviving versus thriving. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and I want to work with leaders who want to thrive and want to create environments where their people thrive. Because, I mean, there there is a, you still have to grow the company, you have to run the business and everything, but I think that the way a company thrives is if you develop people who are really thriving. And that means... On a, on a personal level, um, so yeah, yeah. In uh, oh, a couple, I could just a couple things ran through my head, but I want to go back to what um, talking about the, the loss. I'm going through a, a mastermind group right now, facilitating where we're talking specifically about that. That really what separates successful leaders or even just successful, just people in, in life in general, is, is how you deal, because we're all going to deal with loss and some more tragic than others. But how we rebound from that is really the difference uh, and, and, and how we choose to deal with it can be very impactful and very fruitful in the long run. Talk to me about that, kind of the tragic losses you faced with and even, as you said, your midlife crisis you had in your 20s and how that kind of transformed where you are today. Yeah, sure. Um, and I do talk about this a lot in my work. I don't um, talk about it in my presentations, every presentation, because it's not appropriate in every right. presentation. But I'm finding that more and more organizations um, are wanting me to talk about the personal story because there's a growing uh, valuing of um, this, you know, this idea of authenticity and the power that being genuine and vulnerable and transparent right. has. So, you know, I think one way that um, that we've looked at navigating adversity in the leadership world has been how do you bounce back from that? And I've had so much adversity that I've kind of look, looked at it from a, a meta level, like from a higher level of not just how do you bounce back from it, but how does it actually make you extremely strong? Right. 
um, because through my losses, I, I lost hope, and that's the worst thing mm. in the world. It's kind of like your health. You take it for granted, and when you get sick, suddenly your health becomes number one, and everything else just drops to the, you know, it's right. just, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything, and, and the same thing is true with hope, and if you lose hope, um, it's a terrible thing, and I think there's a lot of lost hope uh, in the world, and I, and I don't think I'm being melodramatic. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of lost hope in the world and in the business world. I think it's been declining for a long time, and um, so I think one of the most powerful things a leader can do is to create a sense of hope in people in the organization. Um, The losses that I experienced when I was three years old, my mother and my sister were killed by a drunk driver. And so my father uh, took me to live with my mother's parents. And we all lived there. I had an older brother and have an older brother. And so my father, my older brother, and I lived with my mother's parents for about a year. And my father remarried and took my brother, and they kind of went off to start a new family, and uh, I stayed behind. Wow. And I think my my father, I think, did that intentionally. I think he loved my mother's parents so much that he knew how important I was to, you know, providing solace to them and to uh, giving them a reason to keep going because they were devastated by the loss of their daughter and granddaughter. But my father wasn't involved in my life. He kind of started his new family, um, my hometown, very, very small hometown of 421 people, Beulah, Michigan. And um, he was in the same town but really wasn't involved in my life. So I essentially, in a year of time, lost my mother, my father, and my sister. Wow. And um, my grandparents were unbelievable, the greatest blessing of my life. They were wonderful, loving people. My granddad was a character with a great sense of humor. Um, You know, I mentioned the role that he played in my life, influencing me in business and with magic, but he was a very gentle, loving man. And when I was 17, he committed suicide in our barn. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, and then, um, that, you know, if you've ever had a suicide in your family, particularly, I mean, he was basically my father and my idol and someone who I felt was the epitome of success. Right. So it, it didn't hit me at the time. It took about 10 years actually for it to sink in. The message that that sent to me was, um, you know, kind of what's what's it all about if your hero, who you think has everything going for him, um, has such a bleak outlook that he chooses to check out. Right. What is what does that say about life? And so that was kind of a a big had a big impact on me in this whole issue of hope. You know, I think the flame started to go out then. Um, a num- number of years go by, and I, uh, my grandmother was still alive, but then she developed spinal myelitis, and-
and so when I was 24 years old, she became a quadriplegic and spent the last nine months of her life literally gasping for air every single breath she took through a, a tracheotomy. And uh, I would go after work and stay with her, and she, um, you know, she was hospitalized. She was in, t in intensive care for those nine months, and so she died in 1985. So by the time I was 23, I had lost my, 24, I had lost my, really my entire family. Wow. Uh, so then a number of years later, I uh, saved my money, built a dream house. Um, shortly after moving into the dream house, I became very ill uh, developed irritable bowel syndrome, lost 40 pounds, and uh, come to find out the house was infected with toxic mold. So the, the house was condemned. I lost everything I had invested in it. Wow. Uh, had to sue the builder to get him to take any action on it, and he had deeper pockets than I did. Um, I eventually had to throw in the towel. I depleted all my funds to to pursue the case went bankrupt and moved into an apartment to start over i was living on the third floor of a three-story apartment building and one afternoon a thunderstorm rolled through the area and struck the roof started a fire eventually the roof collapsed on my apartment and destroyed everything that i had remaining so in about a three-month time period, I'd lost everything materially and everything financially. Oh, my gosh, Andrew. <laughs> it's unbelievable, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Shortly after that, one of my clients sent me an email, and it started out, it said, Dear Job. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh did you did that how did you respond when you saw that the email yeah, yeah i mean i i was laughing about things at that point right. i mean life had just it was when i was standing there looking at the apartment and there's fire engines everywhere and you know I, and i just started laughing i just looked up and i said okay you got my attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. but, but, you know, one of the other things that um, I noticed as I looked around was um, the people. It was mm. my uh, friends who, because I lost my family, my friends became my family. So I looked around, and what was left, you know, all my stuff was gone, but there was Mark, my best friend from my childhood. There was another best friend from my childhood. There were, you know, I just lo looked around and everybody had dropped everything to be there with me. And on top of that, perfect strangers who, you know, the Red Cross was there and the firefighters. And that is what life is about. Yeah. That's what it's about. So was that the beginning? Was when when you started having hope or was... Was that the turnaround point, or, or had you you talked about you'd started losing hope, which is a terrible place to be? Um, when did it start turning around for you? Well, you know, I think there were two factors that um, really took a bite out of the hope. Um, the the I, 
always just thought of it as this light that burned burned in my heart. I always felt like even though when these things were happening, the flame was still going, but it it actually went out as a result of my grandfather's suicide kind of catching up to me uh, and and the loss of my home and the bitter disappointment of a legal system that I thought would protect me, that I thought, you know, would would serve justice, that um, we'll get this fixed. And so it, you know, the combination of those things really kind of doused the flame. And so I went through pretty severe depression. And um, the turning point came when I went back. I, I went up north in northern Michigan um, to do some writing, and I was staying at my best friend's father's home, who was gone for the winter, and I sat there looking out at the lake, and I started writing about my grandfather's suicide. And I went over to the farm where I grew up, and I knocked on the door, and the old guy that bought the farm from us, um, was in his 90s, an old Latvian guy, answered the door, and I said, I'd like to walk around the farm. I grew up here. I'd like to walk around the farm if that's okay with you. And he said, well, I'll walk around with you. So we went down by the barn, and there's this beautiful, magnificent elm tree down by our barn. And he stood underneath it. He spread his arms, and he said, this is my church. Hmm. And the interesting thing about that is that it's an elm tree, and in the Great Lakes region, elm trees were pretty much wiped out um, in the 70s, Dutch elm disease. Right. Yet this elm tree still lives. And um, so it was kind of a mystery when we were growing up, when I was growing up, there was a chain that grew out of this tree. The farmer that had owned the farm before us kept a bull chained to this tree, and it would walk circles around the tree, and it it was like a chainsaw, and it dug a trench. And when they left, they cut the chain, but they left it hanging around the tree, and the tree grew around it. So when I was a little boy, the links of the chain were literally hanging out of the tree, and I would take friends down there, and it was kind of this magical tree. And... um, because we had a cherry farm, every summer the uh, agronomists from Michigan State University used to have to do a census of cherry trees in northern Michigan. It's the largest cherry-growing region in the country. So they'd come up and they'd count trees. They'd go down to our farm. They'd literally walk down into the orchard, and they would always walk by that elm tree, and they would say, how the heck is that tree still alive? And so one year they called my grandmother and they they said, uh, can we come up and take a core sample from your tree to see if we can get to the bottom of this? And she agreed, and so they did. And um, they came back and they found out that the reason the tree had lived was it had an off-the-charts amount of iron Hmm. in it. So 
So when I walked down to the tree with this old Latvian guy that day, I'm standing there looking at this tree, and you can still see the scar on it. You can see where the bark from above meets the bark from below, and it kind of sticks out. You can still see that scar. And so I'm standing there looking at this tree, and I remembered that story, and the barn where Grandpa killed himself is right behind me. And, you know, and it's just, it felt like this looming presence, Mm -hmm. like somebody standing, somebody very sinister standing behind me, breathing down my neck, and I'm looking at the tree, I see the scar, and suddenly something clicked, and I realized that scar saved that tree. Hmm. And maybe our scars are what save us. Maybe our scars are what gives us life. And it's not only is this tree still alive, but I mean, like I said, it's magnificent and it far overshadows the barn. So that place of badness and darkness and everything is just overshadowed by this tree that thrives and it survived because it has a scar. And so that's when everything shifted and I started to think about what is the gift of all this suffering and what I realized was that I've been given the gift of seeing what I've been of seeing how dark things can get, how people can lose hope and how important it is to have hope. And that's when I started talking about my personal story in my work. And it is still the biggest thing that people respond to is, um, the impact that telling that story has of being honest about your suffering and about your feelings and about losing hope and being human. Yeah, that's what a powerful story, Andrew. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's just an amazing, amazing story. I can imagine the feedback you get from telling that. And um, yeah, I mean, that. To, there's no question in my mind. I mean, all of that happened for a reason. I mean, I have to believe that and and that you, you've been given this gift in the midst of all this, like you said, Job-esque type uh, situations um, to, to, to rekindle hope. Because it's if we don't have, you know, whatever losses anybody experiences in life, if, if you lose hope, you're done. You're done. I mean, and that's, there's so many examples of that. And in, in look at all those survivor stories you know, from POWs of people being on a raft, you know, after a plane crash in, in the sea for... 45 days and what what prompted the people that didn't make it and did the only thing was hope that's it you know that's and, right i mean uh if you recall um ross perot's running mate when he ran for president was um admiral yeah, james stockdale. stockdale that's right and um i think jim collins has written about this in um good to great yep he calls it the stockdale paradox where one of the things that that uh, Admiral Stockdale did for his men was keep hope alive. Yep. And 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 the assumption that is widely made is that it was that um, keeping the hope alive that was the difference for those particular POWs. Absolutely. I mean, in in you, yeah, and and talking and reading those stories of all those the ones that didn't make it, they just you could see it. They said when they when they lost it, I mean they were they were gone. The only thing that you had was hope. You know, hope is what allows you to uh, 
love life when life just isn't possibly being lovable, you know? I mean, how can life be lovable in some of those situations? You know, I can't, you know, you know, and, and everybody goes through, and, and life isn't fair, and life is hard. I mean, and people are dealt some really strange decks that you're like, why is that person going through all of this, you know? Um, and how you respond to it is really what differentiates you and, and what you do with it, because... I don't know. That's just a powerful story, Andrew. I mean, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's just, 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 I don't know. I love that story. I just love it. Well, it's, I, I think it's, um, important to show, um, your humanity to, to share that. I, I do it cause I kind of have to, because I, I crave a authentic connection with people. Yes. Um, there's a, a personal driver in it, but again, I've I've just seen how helpful it is to other people. And like you said earlier, Richard, um, you know, adversity is relative. I, mine's dramatic and and all of that, but we all have our adversity, and um, it feels just the same. You know, You're it's, it's right. painful, yep. and um, unfortunately, it's not something that has been um, okay to show or talk about in the business world in particular because, you know, that might show that I'm weak. Yeah. And um, I hope that's people, changing, though. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I hope that's changing, though. I mean, I'm curious to what you think about that because there's such tremendous strength and vulnerability. Not that you're up there, you know, necessarily crying and showing. You know, that's, that's what people equate to. You know, there's, there's a difference, you know. You have to... I don't know. There's a great deal of strength and confidence in, in being vulnerable and authentic, I think. Yeah. Um, it is, I believe it is changing. Uh, I have been surprised at, uh, um, in particular, last year I worked with a major government contractor that everybody uh, knows the name. It wouldn't be appropriate for me to share, but um, I was really surprised that that's what they wanted me to talk about was this um, idea of being transparent and talking about the struggles that you have. And um, and I, my assumption was that this large government contractor was just this cold, unfeeling, command and control kind of environment. And I was very encouraged to see that there and there are a number of other companies that um, it's people are starting to see that when leaders show that they're human that they make mistakes that they struggle to manage a positive attitude that when leaders do that it allows them to um, voice their own concerns to be transparent about it and it disarms that block yeah you know because managing that that block of keeping it inside um it 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 creates a block to creativity it creates a block to uh effective thinking and when you feel open to um to sharing your adversity it invites other people to help out and and to really get to the bottom of things that you know a lot of those kinds of things 
our sticking points that hold us back. And if we don't get them out there, they just continue to kind of fester. Yeah. I think that I've been in some conversations where people think, well, you got to, and I'm all about compartmentalization and, and, and not necessarily acting on your feelings and your emotions. You got to, you got to kind of, you know, being a pilot. And if I have an engine fire, when I say being vulnerable, it doesn't mean that I, um, necessarily respond to what I'm feeling. If I'm feeling scared at the moment, I have to compartmentalize that and get through that situation, you know, for the benefit of everybody on board and myself. But there's nothing wrong with admitting once you get it all done of saying, man, I was petrified when that was going on. You know what I mean? I mean, there's nothing wrong with admitting that. It doesn't mean that you have to um, wear your emotions on a sleeve necessarily. I think you have to have a a professional decorum and and bearing. You can't lose your bearing despite what you're feeling inside, right? Does that make sense? It's not reacting to your feelings necessarily, but being vulnerable is being authentic and honest about your feelings, if that makes sense. That's it. I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, I just think there's a differentiator, you know. And I think people, especially leaders, I think one of the biggest mistakes they can make, especially when they're in a crisis situation or even not even a crisis, but we just don't know what the next course of action is. And then everybody kind of looks at you and you're sitting at the end of the table and like, what next, boss? And I think people go, they lose it when they're sitting and they're trying to bluff their way through it. And I think there's great strength and power if they would just say, you know what, guys, I'm at a loss here. What do Mm -hmm. we do? You know, and I'm feeling a little scared right now if, Mm -hmm. you know, about what the next step should be. But I know we're going to get through this. I mean, that's when you kind of, as a leader, your responsibility to kind of exert that that confidence of suspending the belief of how it's going to get done. You just know it's going to get done. Um, I think people look for leaders for that and, and instead of looking for a solution right away, if that makes sense. I think that's where leaders miss the boat. They, they think they need to have the answer when all those eyeballs come on them. And really what they're looking for is like, this is not going to be easy, but I know we're going to get through it instead. I don't know. What do you think about that? Does that make sense? Yeah, what I've seen is that uh, really great leaders in those cases are transparent about that and what they do is they fan the, the hope flame, which is right. to come back to the reason that our company exists, yes. to anchor everybody in the purpose and to get people reconnected with the important value that our products and services provide to people. So, Because if you don't have the answers, uh, that can start you down a rat hole. Um, that's negative and and you're stuck, whereas the great leaders that I've seen will say, I don't know what the answer is, but remember, here's what we're all about, here's what we're trying to create, and let's figure it out. So it gets everybody kind of focused focused, on um, something that's exciting and inspiring, and then you can start to problem solve uh, for something creative versus um, being lost and, and spiraling down into doubt and confusion. Yeah, and I think where what I've seen, oh, I love how you said that because it goes to the, I think the leader's job is focusing on the intent, the intended outcome, reminding people why we exist and what we're trying to do here. Remember, folks, this is what we're trying to do. And uh, oh, that's I love that. And what you see a lot of times, or what I've seen anyway, is... Um, the leaders feel like they have to do something, so they almost go into planning mode. They and they they kind of take themselves a step down the 
the chain and they start getting more detailed plan, essentially, you know, making, you know, what other people should be doing, you're kind of getting in their way, I guess, you know, and you're kind of making them more, making them less effective. And essentially, if you start planning and planning and detailed planning, that's what I see. And I think that's, that's kind of the death knell of that spiral, I think, of mediocrity. When you, when the top level leaders are in the trenches planning, uh, I think that's a big red flag for me. And you're right. It, it is like a reaction, um, but it's not leading. It's, right. That's planning and things like that are managing, and you need both, of course. Um, but it, particularly in times where you don't know the answers, leadership is required. And, um, you know, I, I think one of the important things about leadership is being conscious of when your activity is creative and when it's reactive. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I'd be remiss. We hadn't even talked about this, but how, you know, I love magic. I've always, you know, I had the magic kid when I was a kid, when I was a kid too. And anytime I see some of these great illusionists on TV, these specials on A&E or whatever, I'm always transfixed to watching them. So why, why, um, how how do you equate magic and leadership? I'm curious about that. Yeah, it's been a really wonderful um, experience. When I was a kid doing magic, I had my own TV show in our local town, and I was really into That's magic. Great. I did a lot of shows. I was making pretty good money as a 14-year-old kid. That's awesome. And, uh, uh, but when I got into college, I kind of became disillusioned, no pun intended, uh, with magic because I kind of thought, um, you know, you pull a rabbit out of a hat, so what? Why would anybody, if they had real magic powers, why would they pull a rabbit out of a hat? So, again, it was kind of that existential thing of what's the point? So I kind of got away from magic as a, um, I considered myself a part-time professional because I was a full-time student. So I kind of got away from it, and then when I graduated and got into business and I was working for Ross, uh, I did magic at the office holiday party, and Ross came up to me afterwards, and he said, Andy, that's real clever how you do that magic. That is something. Whenever you do a business presentation, you need to start building magic into it. <laughs> and so that was the kind of the challenge the, that was the start of it and I started using magic and he said you know it can't be gratuitous you, it's not like I'm going to do a business presentation but first a card trick right he said it, it needs to be relevant and so I'll never forget the first first time I did it he had me you know I'm I was 23 years old and he had me do a presentation to the General Motors Board of Directors, of which he had been made a member. And it was about two different communication platforms that they had in GM and EDS. And anyway, uh, I started doing my magic trick. And I looked around the table, and I just thought, oh, no, what have I done? Because the body language was just terrible. <laughs> yeah, I think people were thinking... Um, you know, where's this kid? What is he trying to be clever? And then I got to the moment of magic, and um, everybody just, the room just erupted positively. Like, they were like little kids. <laughs> and I look back at Ross, and he's just smiling and shaking his head up and down, kind of like I told you. 
<laughs> so I've worked at that for 30 years, building it into my presentations, and it's gotten to the point where now it's the it's the framework for how I um, share uh, leadership principles with people. I've built a, a model around the three magic acts of appear, disappear, and restore, um, because those are, I think, the three acts that constitute transformation. If we want to change our company, if we want to change our personal life, there are things we need to make appear, there are things we need to make disappear, and there are things that need to be restored. And um, that really resonates with a lot of people. Um, I had a client recently that's a Fortune 100 company that's a household name around the world. And they had a leadership conference and brought their executives together from around the world. And they structured their entire conference around that model. It, it was three days. First day, they focused on what is it we need to make appear. The second day, what do we need to make disappear? And the third day, what do we need to restore? And so I share principles of magic, kind of like insights into leadership and innovation from the world of magic that will help people make things appear, disappear, and be restored with greater speed and, and greater simplicity. So it's, it's really amazing how it works. And there's something that goes on when people are watching the magic that uh, it, it's able to get to people who wouldn't normally maybe uh, consider some of the, we'll call it the softer sides of leadership. Um, there's something I think that's going on in our brains when people are watching magic where you've got maybe both hemispheres of the brain firing together or something, but it it accelerates learning. It, it, it gets people into the conversation much more quickly. So it's pretty cool. Well, that sounds cool, and I'd, I'd, I'd love to see your presentation. And speaking of that, you're going to be a part of a, a great uh, leadership summit in April, April 11th through the 13th in Chicago, um, Extreme Leadership Summit, right? Yes. With well, yeah, the Extreme Leadership Summit is uh, organized by my good friend Steve Farber, who is the CEO of the Extreme Leadership Institute. Steve's written several um, best-selling business books. One, uh, The Radical Leap, was named uh, one of the top 100 best business books of all time. And um, he's a passionate uh, leadership guy, and he gathers this really great group of people this year. Uh, Frank DeAngelis, who's the principal of Columbine High School, is going to speak. Um, and then kind of a strange, you wouldn't expect at a leadership conference, but J.J. Yeah, French, JJ, yeah. <laughs> who is the founder of the rock band Twisted Sister, yeah. is going to speak. And, and he's got an amazing story of leadership and navigating adversity. But it's a really great group of people who are passionate about how business can and leadership can change the world. So it's a very high energy um, and and diverse gathering. Yeah, I'm, I, I, what a great group of folks. And again, I talked to Steve last week. I, I'm posting his interview um, later this afternoon. I talked to Doc, I've talked to Dr. Tasha Yurek, which is on there too, and, and uh, Pete 
Luongo, who I talked to, I haven't posted the interview yet, but uh, man, what a great group of folks. And and uh, Steve was actually going to try to get uh, JJ to come on the show too. So I'm looking forward to that connect. That would be, I think, so much fun to have him on here. And uh, what a great, and the, what I like about the summit too, is that it's not one of these kind of typical, a lot of times when you see um, people coming to these type of shows, it's like, hey, I'm going to talk about my four out of my 10 leadership principles and oh, go by the way here's my cd if you want the rest of them here's my cd and program in the back of the room and it's not that at all this is like real you know getting down brass tacks authentic leadership transformational leadership that can change your life and your organization's life so um i'm excited to see how this thing's going to turn out i mean this is the second one right it's the second one and it is different because it's like a community in conversation yeah it's it's the speaker after speaker book and DVD in the back of the room all the speakers are uh, basically required to be there for the full conference so it's not like you zoom in do your presentation zoom out it's no this is a gathering of people who are here because they believe in a purpose and we want to be in conversation with each other awesome well, Andrew, how can people get in touch with you? I'll have links to the Extreme Leadership Summit, but what about you specifically? How can people find you and get in touch with you? My website is magicofandrewbennett.com. So it's magicofandrewbennett, it's B-E-N-N-E-T-T.com. And the website has my has video so you can see some magic, which is fun, but it also will show you how it's integrated into... Um, a message, and then my model that I mentioned that's built around magic is on there. We've got an interactive graphic where you can see the the model and the descriptions of the elements of it, so you get some idea of how that can be applied to, to business. Well, that sounds great. Andrew, what a great guest. Uh, what a great conversation. I look forward to uh, staying in touch with you and, and possibly working with you in the future and at least certainly having more conversations with you about leadership. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, you're a great interview, Richard, and I, uh, interviewer, and I really admire the work that you're doing, so it's my pleasure. Oh, that means a lot. Thanks for coming in, and we'll talk to you soon. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.